Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for listening in on another episode. Or if this is your first time stopping by, I'm grateful to have you. This podcast is all about the getting started moments, the turning points that got each guest started on a new path toward happiness, the ups and downs of the journey, how they were able to commit to a change, and all the lessons learned along the way. I hope you all enjoyed this particular episode, so let's jump right in and get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Daniel Stillman, who is an executive coach and conversation designer. He works with organizations like Google, Nike, and Visa to help them frame and sustain productive dialogue, deepen their facilitation skills, and coach them through the innovation process. He also hosts the Conversation Factory podcast, where he interviews leaders, change makers, and innovators on how they design the conversations in their work and lives. I hope you all enjoy this conversation I have with Daniel. And without further ado, please welcome in Daniel Stillman. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this I'm is going to be a be lot here. of fun. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation um, and, ha- and talking about conversations and going deep into that. Can you start us off, though, for folks that you may be the 30 second elevator you know, pitch, if you will, yes. is the conversation factory. If folks aren't familiar with that, what, what is that? What are you doing with that? Are there some bullet points? Jump in? <laughs> the conversation factory is a joke that has gone way too far. That's the, <laughs> the elevator pitch. I started the conversation factory. It's, it, I mean, I have a podcast where I interview people about how they design the conversations in their lives. And it's also my doing business as. So if companies prefer to write a check to a company yeah. instead of a person, they can. Um, but what I do as, as me, Daniel Stillman in the conversation factory is, uh, you know, I'm an executive coach and I coach leaders and teams and organizations on how to have better communication and ultimately collaboration in the service of making better stuff. Mm. Because my thesis is every terrible thing in the world came out of a terrible meeting where somebody did not say something that was important to say, you know, so that's. That's, that's my thesis. Conversations matter. Like down to the, like the individual moment of like, what should, what conversation should have happened here? Yeah. And that didn't. Well, and and I definitely want to uh, pry into that deeper. Maybe you spent a lot of time on that. Could you share, because I always think it's fun uh, with the Just Get Started podcast, all the, the varying guests I have. Yeah. Is most folks, I've had a few, but most what they're doing today yeah. 15, 20 years ago, they never would have thought this is what they would be doing kind of as their main role, their main kind of ambition. So can you share maybe one or two turning points that yeah. got you off the path that maybe you're on earlier in life and, and transition you to this one? Well, so I want to pull back because when I was, I was thinking about this question, I, I think when, when I think about the pivots in my life, what happens is I start to tell the story of my life differently. So, you know, when I talk about designing conversations, now I realize like, whoa, that's kind of what I was always doing. Mm. Right. Uh, And it's only that I found a word for it or a name for it and was able to um, get paid for it directly as opposed to indirectly. Mm. You know, similarly for coaching, you know, a lot of people uh, myself included, are like, oh, I've, I'm always, I've always been coaching people. I've always tried to like listen to people and find out what's really going on in their lives. But it's only now that I've like figured out that that's what I want. So in a way, I think there are definitely some people who are who just do a total pivot, 
but I always think it's more interesting if you find a way to bring everything you've ever done and everything who you are to bear on the thing that you're doing. But for me, I also think this question of when the pivot point was, it's so hard to know because life is so, it's such a, a branched. So, you know, take for example, my first, my, my first real business, uh, you know, I, I remember the, the day, I remember the last moment of the, like the final check-in for this, the first weekend workshop I did, you know, there was like a big prototype that we ran just to like, see if people liked it, if they would pay for it. And it was such a joy to do it. But I think about how did I get the, the ability to run that workshop? I went to a kimchi making party mm. with my friend, Carl. He was, he had backed this group called the, the Brooklyn Brainery. It was a community education platform. And I remember being, there was, there was this huge kimchi making party. Imagine like uh, 40 or 50 hipsters and like snaking along a whole set of tables at each station was like a bowl of ingredients that you could put into your jar of kimchi that you were going to make. And I met the founders of this place, this guy named uh, uh, Soma. And I was like, this place is amazing. Like, what are you doing here? Like, he's like, you know, we're just doing community education. Anybody who wants to teach a workshop can, can teach a workshop. Like, and I was like, what kind of things are you looking for? And he's like, well, everything. But specifically, we don't have enough people offering stuff in physics like sciences and I, my first degree is in science. You talk about a pivot, right? Like yeah. I, my, my first degree is in physics and I never really quote unquote used it in my day to day work. And I was like, I would love to do a session on like, you know, physics for like regular people, like how to appreciate why physics matters. And my friend Carl's like, you're not like an expert. I'm like, and someone's like, he just needs to know more than the people in the room, which he does. You know, I only have a bachelor's, not a PhD. And so I started running workshops for the Brooklyn Brainery. Like, that's a real turning point where I was like, oh, that'd be so cool. Yeah. And I learned the art of workshopping. You know, that was that was 2010, right? Talk about going back a lot of years. Like, in 2010, I just started running a lot of workshops. And then finally, I ran out of hobbies. I did something on physics and origami, which was something I used to be really into when I was a younger kid, bread baking. And finally I was like, you know, it'd be cool doing a workshop on design thinking for non-designers. And this is a real turning point. When I said to my friend Miles, Hey, do you want to do this, this workshop with me? And he was like, totally. Hmm. And we designed that workshop and we we're like, Whoa, that was fun. People went totally bonkers over it. And we got our, we got a client out of it. That was a turning point, getting my first check as an independent consultant. Yeah. And that started this other journey that became like me having uh, some credibility. And people say like, oh, how did you get started in design thinking? Like I just did it, right? Just getting Let's, started, right? I yeah. just ran some workshops on it. That's a great point. And well, one thing too, to, to underscore is you, you talk about that kimchi kind of workshop <laughs> or whatever is, I mean, that's serendipity. Sometimes serendipity. you never know, you kind of walk into yeah. it and it's like, oh, and so, you know, I, I think at, at least as I look back now, all of those moments that kind of maybe get us out of our comfort zone or not, but at least kind of get us into a new experience. It almost yeah. opens up a new wave of thinking. So like yes. that idea popped in your head. You mm -hmm. may not have had the idea just sitting at home, but it was because you were in some different environment, you know, is it totally, I find that's very important. Oh, absolutely. I just wrote uh, an article about this, strangely enough, this idea of having a serendipity engine in your life or engines 
the, a, a means to regularly create, <laughs> as it were, opportunities for serendipitous connections. And for sure, saying yes, getting out of your house, having friends who are doing interesting things, like the fact that my friend Carl was the kind of person who would just back random stuff on Kickstarter. I mean, I think he knows those people through like a gaming night he was involved in. And little did he know that he was like teeing me up for like my next career. Yeah. Right. That's really interesting. And, but I didn't know either. I mean, this is the problem with serendipity engines is that like we tell the stories backwards, but we live life forwards. Yeah. And so I can key it to my moment at the kimchi party and then the moment that Miles and I offered that workshop and when we formed a company from it. But at the time, I didn't know that oh, sure. three years later, those partners were going to fire me. Yeah. Right. And then I would spend a couple of years um, feeling really lost mm. and that it would take me a couple more years to figure out what I wanted to offer as me. Right. So you could tell you could you, I could start the story from any yeah. one of those points and tell tell like, you know, what's the turning point? Well, I it's, think that's the interesting thing, though, is that as long as we continue to progress forward, you know, we kind of, we yeah. kind of learn from where we're at and then, Hey, totally. do I want to go down the path left or right? Okay. I go left. All right. Well now there's another left and right. And you, you kind of keep navigating. I, I think that's one of the things we is, you know, just, you know, where I write a lot of blog articles and stuff. I just wrote one that'll, I don't know when it'll launch here in the next few weeks, but around like regret is we always regret stuff. But at the end of the day, we make the decisions in the moment. I don't know why we regret stuff. Like we make the decisions yes. whether we're going to do something or not. Yes, it might be twenty years down the road. We're like, oh, I should have done that. Well, yeah. twenty years ago, you you know you you made that decision. So you totally. what you did and and with yeah. the information you had. Totally. Like I I I completely regret. You know, you talk about <laughs> the getting fired from my own company, like getting a buyout and then mm -hmm. being you know, which is basically getting a, a business divorce. For those yeah. of you who don't know, when your partners offer you a buyout, that's a business divorce. And it was really sad and hard to lose that business. But because of that, I wound up traveling to Australia and I met a group. I did some consulting with them. They called their facilitative practice conversation design. And I was like, what does that even mean? That's so weird. And that consulting gig is what got me started on this idea of what does it mean to design a conversation? What do we design when we're designing it? How do I explain this to myself and other people? It's what got me starting my podcast. It's what led to me writing my next, my book, right? So you talk about turning points and moving forward and showing up. It's like, I would also say it's like following the scent, you know, following your, following your passion, following your curiosity. Yeah. Uh, for, for sure. I don't think I realized that conversation. I had a, a suspicion that the conversation design could be a thing, but I had no idea in 2015 that I would write a book about it. Yeah. Right. It well, wasn't until a couple of years later that I was like, I think there's something here. What is it about? Because, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I, when you talk about design, like you were actually yeah. designing like products and like yeah. processes and those type of things. So how do you get from there to conversations? It, it seems yeah. different in my mind, but maybe it's, there's similarities. Yeah. I mean, so I came from, I studied industrial design at Pratt, uh, which is like the design of mass manufactured objects mm. and everything around us is designed, right? There's book design and there's, you know, that furniture behind you is designed uh, and the manufacturing process, the machines on it, it was all designed but starting in, I mean, boy, the story of design thinking goes back a long ways, but 
the idea that you can apply the process of design, which is better framing of problems, better understanding of people and empathy, and the willingness to be iterative and creative in finding solutions, and then having a prototyping mindset to the implementation of those solutions, all of those mindsets and skill sets of design became design thinking and IDEO and the Doblin group and a whole bunch of other companies basically started selling design thinking to other organizations, to non, you know, design people to say like, Hey, you should have, you should design your business, right? You should uh, design your operations. Uh, You should be human centered in everything you do. HR folks are like, Oh my God, design thinking is something I can apply to the whole employee experience. And that was also my experience when I got out of industrial design school. It wasn't just objects, printers and phones. It was experiences over time. And that was like saying, Oh no, no, we're doing interaction design or experience design or service design. And so when I heard conversation design, I was like, what does it mean to do to design a conversation? We know what it means to design a business or a process, right. Or a workshop, but applying design to conversations in general, that to me was like a puzzle that I've been figuring out for the last couple of years. So, yeah, I mean, it's design broadly defined is uh, intentionally making things better, right? Des- designing uh, preferred conditions from existing ones. That's, uh, that's from Herb Simon, who's a Nobel laureate in economics. Design is for everyone. Everyone designs something. Right. You designed your podcast. You designed your business. Right. You designed this room. You designed your house. Right. And so to me, it's just what are we designing when we design the conversation? Like what are, what are our options? What, what are we actually shifting and changing when we're trying to make a conversation better? And I think most of us are just doing it uh, instinctively or we're copying other designs and not really knowing that they're just the way things have always been done. It's like that classic Steve Jobs quote of like everything in the world was made by someone else who's really no more fundamentally intelligent than you are. And you can either live those patterns that someone else has made or you can make your new your own patterns. And so the question of like, well, why are most meetings an hour? Google changed the design. They actually have a feature where you can automatically every meeting is made 10 minutes shorter which right. it like changes the default of like, well, actually, no, when you get an hour with a therapist, it's actually 45 minutes, right? <laughs> they charge you for an hour, but you get 45. That's part of it that's just built in so that they can go five minutes over and still have 10 minutes to go to the bathroom for their next meeting, yeah. right? Google said, we're going to change the interface for the conversation. Google Calendar is where I, you know, we set up all of our conversations and they're just going to, they said like, you know what? Everything ends 10 minutes early now. That was huge. That changes the whole way that people meet. Or, oh, wait, why do we meet for 15 minutes instead of 30 minutes? There are some companies that I've worked with where they're just stuck in a 30-minute meeting culture. And they're like, I don't know why we can't have more creativity and collaboration. And I'm like, that's because you can't do that much in 30 minutes if you don't have a really, really, really clear purpose and a really, really clear process. Yeah. That's what I was going to bring up is like the – sometimes you get invited to these meetings and like, what's the agenda yeah. Like, well, no, I just want to chat. I just want to see. <laughs> yeah. Well, poor design, underdesigned. Yes. Maybe, but also just getting together to chat is a design, right? Correct. And yeah, that's, that's okay. Fair. That there's there's room in every company's meeting culture to make space for that, or there there can be there there should be right uh, room for that. But yeah, well, an agenda is just the first step, 
right? Agenda yeah. is like a series of things we'd like to talk about, but it's not how would we like to talk about them? Who's going to speak first? Who's going to anchor the conversation? Is Tom from accounting going to pitch the first idea? And is Cindy from operations going to uh, poop on it as they always do? Yeah. Like I'm, you've, we've all been in those groups, right? Where somebody speaks first and somebody immediately opposes it or immediately says, Oh, that's a great idea. We should do that. And then the conversation's over, but that's not actually having a legitimate conversation about, well, why, why those options, just the one option that we thought of is the one we're going to do. Well, and you'd mentioned earlier about maybe, and maybe this will tie into it about like, no one speaks up in the meeting. So like it's a, you know, all of a sudden yeah. you go down the wrong, you know, kind of, I guess, path. So give me some ideas and, and for folks listening in on what are some of the key components to structure mm. better, a better conversation? Are there some yeah. pride and trues? Yeah, well, absolutely. And I'll, I'll just say, I'll plug my, my book, Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter. I, over the, the couple of years of having my podcast, I I was trying to just boil it down to like, what are the elements? What are we designing when we are designing the conversation? And some of the easiest to see and shift is like turn-taking. Just literally, what is the turn-taking pattern? And that's what we're talking about here is like, there's a question and then a proposal and then a collapse onto the proposal. That's obviously broken, Mm. at least in my opinion. And we could come up with a million better patterns to the, to that anti-pattern at the very least, why not have everyone share what they think their proposal to the problem would be, uh, silently in writing a silent meeting. I I wrote an article about that ages ago. Silent meetings are an amazing solution to that problem. Uh, nobody gets to talk first. Everyone writes down their idea and then we all review everyone's proposal and see, Oh, there's some overlap. Oh, uh, there's some disagreement. Then what? Now what? Well, let's have a conversation about how we should decide. That's a great pattern. Most yeah. most businesses have never had the conversation about how ought we to make a decision? Who does get to decide? Yeah. How do we decide how to decide? Is there a decider? Is this a consultation? Or is this like, are we going to make the decision in this room? And who gets to decide how we decide? Like, is this consensus, which kind of winds up being the default? Or is there someone who is best suited to make this decision? And I think a group could reasonably have that conversation. Hey, should we all get a voice in this? Sure. Should we all get to decide what we do? No. Who is the best person? Well, actually, Sally knows the most about this. So I think of looking at all the proposals, she, in consultation with Roy, should probably make the decision. But that's that's a conversation that usually doesn't happen because we just say, okay, everyone, here's the problem. What do we think? that's not very um, well thought out. As you said, like, I have an agenda. Let's talk about problem A, problem B, and problem C. But I don't have a method to make sure that everyone is actually thinking through the options to problem A. And why are we solving problem A? What are the implications of solving problem A? So yeah, there are some tried and true patterns. It's called having, (laughs) I'm sorry, it's called having the conversation. Like, how are we going to decide why, what do we understand about this problem? For me, it's just the, all the design thinking phases. Like, do we really understand the problem? Do we really understand the people that we're solving this problem for? Well, right? you bring what, good, what are all the options? Yeah, sorry, I think you bring up a great point, though, is like, it's always, it, you know, at least seems in the organization I'm in and 
um, and, and ones I've been in the past, it's always like the senior, the, the senior leader, the top person, they're the one that makes a decision um, that, you know, kind of up, up in the tower, as people say, like they're up, we give our ideas, but then they go make the decision. And yeah. I, to your point, and, I, and this is why I always enjoyed, you know, kind of how Ray Dalio talks about the idea of meritocracy and kind of the mm-hmm. best idea wins type thing. But yeah, you bring a good, now I wanted to go back though. I wrote a note down here. I love the silent meeting idea. Sure. Yeah. Do you recommend, so let's say someone's in, I don't know, there's 10 people in the room, they're doing a silent meeting. Are those anonymous ideas or do you tag your name to them? Yeah. So that's another element of design, right? Uh, And we could talk through like, how does it affect it if we know who the proposer is versus not? And I I think there's benefits and um, trade-offs to both. I wouldn't say one is better than the other. That's what I mean. When it comes to design, it's like these are choices. I'm a big fan of, and I've done workshops like this where it's all silent generation, all, um, as you say, anonymous or anonymized. And then someone reads off a proposal that isn't theirs. And then everyone discusses it and adds pluses and deltas for that, that proposal. That has a lot of benefits, but the minus is it's kind of weird. That person has to pretend that they don't, you know, they had nothing to do with it. Nobody gets to ask clarifying questions. Uh, but you you can see there's a lot of benefit to having people at least take a first pass on proposals without having the judgment of, oh, they're unpopular. Therefore, this idea should be unpopular or they're not the most powerful person in this group. Therefore, I'm not going to support it because that might make me look bad. Um, so there's definitely trade-offs. And, you know, turn-taking is one of the elements in the conversation operating system. Power is another. Like, how are we going to recognize power or dismantle power in the conversation? And there are advantages and disadvantages to both, as we're, as I was po- hopefully pointing out successfully. The highest-paid person's of opinion, the hippo in the room... Like, yeah, the default is to listen to and to uh, defer to power. But let's discuss it. The person who is the most powerful person in the room, if they really thought about, well, how do I want to lead? Like, how how do I want to grow the people in the group? If they really thought about how they wanted to show up on purpose in the room and how they wanted to uh, grow their team, they uh, might think a little bit more carefully about the process by which they share their ideas because it disrupts the process of having an egalitarian conversation and having someone feel like their ideas are worth being heard, you know, rather than, you know, it's so easy to sweep in and say all the reasons why somebody's idea is wrong. But if you want to grow your talent and the capacity of your team, getting them to get better at self-critiquing or peer critiquing means that they're going to, tune up their ideas without you having to drop the hammer, right? And so designing that opportunity into the conversation is just much more, um, it creates more sustainable capacity in the team, right? So, and that's just a way to design the conversation. Or, you know, if you want to be the smartest person in the room and continue to have everyone defer to you and rely on you and for you to be constantly overstressed, <laughs> then for sure, uh, jump in with your ideas, uh, or just don't have the meeting at all. Just tell people how, how it's going to be, which is fine. 
They don't have a pretend. Don't yeah. yeah, and don't have a yeah. Having a pretend meeting and asking people to generate ideas against a challenge that you've already decided what you're going to do is theater and a waste of everyone's time and really frustrating for people as well. I think a terrible design for the conversation. <laughs> you, well, I mean, that's another good point because I think about it with you know organizations I've been in and and you know frustrations like I have where I'm like. For instance, you know, kind of being on the on the sales side, it's like, well, I talk with clients all day, every day. I have a good idea of what they're looking for, maybe yeah. their struggles, whatever. But I don't. I feel like my ideas are heard, mm. and you kind of get to that point to, to what you're saying is like, okay, we're going to listen to everyone, and then they, you know, the organization does something totally different. It's like, well, I don't even feel like I'm heard, and I think yeah. a lot of people have that frustration. Yes, and to your point, it's like, well is the design and the structure there in advance versus just going into a meeting and we kind of go yeah. through the same, you know, motions every time. Well, yeah. And this is why the, the, you know, we say the meeting starts when people first hear about it. And, <laughs> you know, when somebody tries to pick my brain for a challenge and, and this, this probably happens to you too. They're like, Hey, Brian, love to like get your thoughts on blah, blah, blah. And you're like, totally, man. Happy to, sit down, have a chat with you and you give them some thoughts, give them some pointers, ask them some questions. And they go, that was great. Thanks. And I go, Hey, the cost of free advice is telling me how it went. You got to let me know if my advice is terrible. uh, So I won't give it to anybody else ever again. And I'd like to know if it worked out. So just circle back in a couple of weeks and let me know how it it went. Almost never does anybody do this. And I would love it if they did. Because it would let me know, it would just close the loop on the conversation. And I think closing the loop on the conversation is exactly what you're talking about here. You talk about a good design for a good, sustainable conversation, close the loop. If you invited some people to give up their creative time and their life force and space in their calendar to pitch in to help you with your problem, and you either regarded or disregarded their input, you should tell them why. I think it's like a very, very poor design to not try to re-engage them in the process because are you going to be resentful or excited the next time they reach out to you? Hey, Brian, you know, we have another challenge with sales. We're wondering if you could like weigh in. You're going to bring, you're going to show up, but not fully. You're going to be a little resentful. You're going to kind of drag your feet. And this is why when people say to me, you know, my I need help motivating the creative energy of my team. My first question is like, what's your design for the, the larger arc of the conversation, not just in the meeting, but how do you communicate with them before and well after that conversation happens about what you did with all of that creative input, right? It's just about closing the loop. That is a, a a durable, worthwhile design for any conversation close the loop give people back the love do you find though that because i I like the approach do you find though that a lot of people don't ask for the feedback though like they they don't even ask for the feedback they kind of just okay hey have a good day type stuff because so that maybe the folks that are wanting to give feedback maybe they don't even know i should or don't feel comfortable whatever but if someone to to what you're saying if they approach it and end the conversation hey would love your feedback Mm-hmm. Let's see how it goes. If my advice was even relevant, that might incite people to actually give the feedback. Is that, does that make sense? I'm, I'm curious if, if the first part isn't happening. 
So let me make sure I understand because I'm not sure if I if I got it. It's like some people don't even know that they should be including a broader range of people in the conversation. And is that is that well, what? I'm, well, I guess no. Sorry. So I'm saying is like if folks are because I love the approach of asking someone for feedback of how mm-hmm. they, did my advice you know land oh, well, yeah. did it work yeah. whatever. But I my I guess my observation and just kind of understanding the world is that most people aren't even asking to say hey did my advice work Oh yeah totally you, you know what I'm saying So it's almost like they can't get the feedback because they haven't <laughs> asked for it Yeah. I mean, I, my door is definitely open and I'm eager to get that feedback, but for sure, uh, tons of leaders, I coach on this, the question of having a two-way door for feedback, like being interested in that. Yeah. Most people are not asking for that feedback. Most people are like, oh, here's my advice. Good luck, kiddo. Which is just sort of the standard design of like somebody with less power comes to somebody who they see as has more power to ask them for advice, um, direction, mentorship. But it should be a two-way conversation. Like any good conversation should be two-way. A good conversation is not me just monologuing, right? A good conversation is where there's a feedback loop during the conversation and after the conversation. So like absolutely, I would love for more people to – you know, I I, did, I ran a workshop a couple of weeks ago where built into the event platform was a little survey, like just giving stars and giving a, a piece of feedback. It would be great if that was uh, attached to every meeting in every Google Calendar invite. How was this conversation? Did you get what you needed out of it? Was this helpful? <laughs> any? Do you have any feedback for that person's style or their their preparation? Like. That would make that kind of iterative feedback loop, I think, would make everything better. Totally. 100%. Well, you do get the, you know, like Zoom and, and some of these others that do like, hey, how was the call quality and stuff? So yeah. Like your point. Yeah. Is, they're not asking for the quality. <laughs> how was the call quality? Quality. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. How was the content of the call? Not just could you hear it? Yeah. Yeah, that would be that's, that's a good idea, though. I, I do like that. I, I think that's it. And I think partly this comes back to, you know, we don't we don't have to go down this rabbit hole. But I think and maybe why these conversations are so difficult for people to have or to structure meetings, because you have so many different personalities in the room. Some people are like, if you have 20 people in a room, half, maybe it's well more than half, they don't even want to speak up. Because sure. they're scared to share their ideas or they're yeah. scared of a backlash, even though they might not get any. Yeah, um, it might be the greatest idea in the world, but they don't share. Do you find that's a tough approach, or yeah. when you start designing these because there are kinks in the in the system? If people yeah. don't share, yeah. One of the elements in the conversation operating system is like just just the people. The conversation is made up of people, which sounds way too simple when I say it that way. If you have more people in the conversation, it's more complex and more rich. But there's also things happen like uh, the amount of airtime per person that's even possible goes down, right? I remember talking to a CEO of a major uh, uh, apparel brand who had this aha of like, wow, this is such an engaging and dynamic conversation you facilitated for us. And I was like, and what made that happen? He's like, well, we were, it was just me and my core team. We didn't include everybody in this. And which was their habit was like having 30 person meetings where the social loafing factor is just, just increases, you, it's so much easier to hide in a 30-person meeting. And you're also like, I don't even know if I have something that great to say. So I, whatever so-and-so said was fine. 
so the the you increase the size of the group so you can have a more diverse conversation, a more diverse group solving whatever challenge you're solving. But then the amount that you can include people decreases. So diversity, equity, and inclusion are uh, three uh, and belonging are four very important components of psychological safety in teams. And saying to the group, anybody have any ideas is not the same thing as making people feel like you really, really want to hear what they have to say. And it's also not designing a structure like a silent meeting or where everyone writes down their ideas, where you ensure that everyone participates Right. That's that's designing participation in versus assuming that people feel safe to share their ideas. It's so hard. You can't just say, everyone, you're safe. It's safe here. You're all safe to share and all ideas are accepted. There's no bad ideas. You can say that, but you can't guarantee that people feel it. You have to build that sense of psychological safety over time and design uh, opportunities and systems in your group dialogue that guarantees the opportunity for them to share and be heard over time, they'll realize, yeah, this person really wants my opinion, values it. And even when they don't use it or take it, I understand why. So that next time I'm still going to participate 100%, even though last time, they didn't go with the direction that I pitched. That is really hard to do. That does not come for free. That takes time and effort over time. Yeah. If I could take a slight off ramp here, but <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm, I, well, I want to stay on this topic, but kind of, you know, cause, and especially when I, when I coach a lot of folks on from a sales standpoint, mm. um, it's one of those things where it's, you can't be a different person, let's say selling than you are at home or in your personal life. So my yeah. curiosity is, how can folks take what we're talking about and apply those to their relationships, to parenting? Like, yeah, I, because as you're talking, I'm thinking about my nine year old and like, I try to have conversations. I try to sit them down and, and actually have way more dialogue than I ever had with my parents. Mm. But at the same time, I think of some of these things you're talking about structure wise. So is there anything folks can look at to say, well, gosh, if I can't even structure meetings at home, how am I going to do them at work? Yeah. What are some things they could do to structure them at home better? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I learned in, you know, all the research I did for my book on what conversations are made of, like what's the structure of them? Some of it comes down to our psychology and we really do love finding patterns and eliminating in, in uh, uncertainty and moving things forward. Right. Cause it's just, it just feels good to like not sit with uncertainty. It feels so much better to, to move things forward. We have this, it, it basically, there's a couple of facts here that I think are help, helpful for this. One is we can speak at like a hundred some odd words per minute, but we can think at 4,000 words per minute, depending on how you measure it. There's a couple of studies and it's, it's hard to measure, obviously, in inner speech. But the, the, the takeaway there is there's a huge gap between what we said and what we thought. And there's that classic quote of like, you know, there's what I said and what they heard and what I thought they said and what I thought they meant. And there's always this huge gap. But for me, the fact of 125 words per minute and 4,000 words per minute is like a shocking gap of like a factor of uh, 10 
at least, that we shouldn't assume that we understood everything they said because they couldn't have said everything that they meant to say. They're thinking so much more than they could ever say. And so this is why it's always worthwhile to say, tell me more about that thing you just said. Just applying uh, a little bit of a pumping of the brake in the conversation OS, it's, a, it's about the cadence of the conversation. It's great to have repartee and to move the conversation forward, say, oh, that's a really great idea. Thanks for that point. That takes me to blank. That takes me to blank. Let's move forward. It's much harder to, to pause, to pump the brakes and say, was there anything else you wanted to say about that? And that comes from my user research background, the realization that anytime somebody gives me an answer, and this is great in a sales setting as well, 100%. When you ask somebody a question and they say, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, cool, great. So I'm going to answer that objection now. Boom. Versus like, tell me more about that. Well, who else has that problem? Like, how long have you been having that problem? Well, like, did, is there anything else I haven't asked you about that you want to tell me about? And that's certainly at home as well. We're all, we all have a built-in jumps to conclusions, Matt, because there's another set of conversation facts, which is generally speaking, 200 milliseconds is a, a gap that uh, between one person taking a turn and another, that if you wait more than 200 milliseconds from when I speak to when you sort of respond, it makes it sound like you're overthinking. It's dead air. It makes both of us anxious. But the truth is it actually takes us, even though we can think at 4,000 words per minute, it still takes us around 600 milliseconds to, to combobulate a response to what somebody has said. So, like, that means that most of the time when we're responding to someone, we're winging it. We're using the last couple of milliseconds of their turn to guess where they're going and to start to formulate a response to move the conversation forward so we don't keep them hanging with some dead air, make it look like we're overthinking, and make them feel awkward. And so it's always a good idea to either A, get more comfortable with silence everywhere, both at home and at work, B, ask a follow-up question. And the easiest follow-up question is uh, just using active listening. Just summarize whatever you did here and say, was that right? Or I think I got that, but I have more questions about blank. Just digging a little bit more deeply. And I think that's great at home and it's great at work. I, it's so easy to jump to a conclusion with our loved ones. You know, we just want them to be happy and at peace and at ease. And so we want to, I mean, speaking on behalf of all men in the universe, uh, often it's very tempting to try and solve a problem that somebody brings to us, right? Without saying, oh, that sounds hard. Or tell me more about that. And this is my favorite question to my wife is, do you want me to just listen to you? Do you want coaching? Do you want me to brainstorm with you? Or do you want me to just like empath, you know, just do you want me to get on your side and just like enter the bitch fest with you? Right. Like which, which of these four options will be the most helpful to you? And she's luckily amenable to this approach. And she's like, no, no, I just want you to hear me out. I just want you to hear. I just had a rough day and I just need to talk it out. Or, no, no, I really would love to brainstorm with you. And I don't know if a nine-year-old, I don't have a nine-year-old. A nine-year-old might really appreciate the option. No, Dad, I just want you to listen to me. Or, actually, I would really love some advice. 
or I just don't know what my options are. Like those are, those are all really different choices. And I would love for the world to just be able to make those choices rather than our defaults, right? The default that sometimes doesn't always work. No. Well, and on that, you know, and I got me thinking back to the silent meetings a little bit, but really around preparation. Yeah. Um, and, and I know, you know, we were talking about this before we jumped on here about, you know, where I, and I've been doing this for a while where I'll send some sort of guest questions just mm-hmm. to get you thinking a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate your preparation coming in and jotting down some notes. A lot of folks don't, yeah. um, but how, like, I, I guess, and, and whether this is business or at home or what have you, it, it could take an either way, but do you find that's helpful to, if you present like, Hey, this is the agenda. These are some of the, some mm. of the topics, or these are some of the things to actually, cause I, you know how sometimes you get in a heated debate it's like, sure. for, to your point, it's like the first thing you think about and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you forget like an hour later, like, oh, there was four other points I just thought of. Like if you mm-hmm. have time to prepare, how sure. important is that to bring some of that preparation into the meeting or into the I conversation? Mean, I mean, it depends on how formal you want your, your family conversations to be. I've definitely done like uh, the kind of workshopping stuff that I do for some of my clients to my family. You know, when my parents were talking about, did they want to sell their house? Where do they want to live? We just, we laid out some of the scenarios, you know, we had four or five different scenarios, basically ran the equivalent of a scenario planning exercise, which originated from a Dutch shell, Dutch Royal shell in like the nineties scenario planning exercise. Okay. What are the, what are the likely scenarios and let's, what are the pluses and minuses and opportunities in each one of these? My mom loved it. It was great. It was very effective uh, way to to make sure we knew what all our options are. My wife and I make mind maps all the time, you know, when we're planning vacations and, you know, thinking about decisions, we'll get out the sticky notes and I've got a big chalkboard and we'll map things out. I remember years ago, there was a guy who took, you know, a, a workshop that I had taken on some conversation mapping techniques and he used this classic of the impact difficulty matrix with his kids. He was, he was divorced and he only had, you know, certain weekends with them. And so he would basically at the beginning of the weekend, get his daughter and his son to capture on some sticky notes, the things they were most excited to do with him. And they just mapped it all out, you know, importance versus difficulty. And they just would do a quick brainstorm, get everything out, map it out and say, okay, now we have our agenda for Saturday and Sunday go. Right. And that's, I mean, I I don't know that melted my heart when he told me that, like the ability to take this really great visual thinking technique into his very time strapped, uh, opportunities to spend quality moments with his, his kids and using a visualization and conversation mapping technique to just make sure that they were all on the same page. Whereas a lot of times we think like, oh my God, I've got to come in with the whole plan and wow them. It was very empowering for his kids to be part of the weekend planning. Right. And right. also for them to realize, like, yes, maybe we can't do ponies and, you know, this other high difficulty, you know, we can't go go-karting and go horseback riding. Those are two very high difficulty activities. They both take a lot of time. So maybe go-karting and ice cream. That's, you know, we'll circle those two and we'll do some dot voting and we'll get our weekend plans together. And that's making sure that everyone's getting a voice. Everyone's collaborating. It's just delightful. And I think 
it meant that the time he spent with his kids was just better, better planned and everyone felt like they were involved. So that's, mm. I think you absolutely can do this with, with kids, with kids and with loved ones of all ages, if they're willing to. That's actually, you got to have willing participants. I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, totally. My brother dragged his heels a little bit, but that was fine. Like he, he, he got involved. Yeah. It's a, and it's okay. If somebody's like, wait, I don't understand what this bud thing's about. Like with this, you know, it's roses, thorns and buds to describe the, the pluses and, and it just was on me to make it as straightforward and as simple as I could so that he could be engaged. Um, this is a, this is a great, this is a great conversation. Um, I, I want to, I don't want to be respectful of time on this, but yeah. so, so let's, uh, let's look to end on this maybe is we, you mentioned sticky notes and I always like to end yeah. conversations, you know, with, and obviously there's so much advice you can give or quotes you can share yeah. things you've learned in, in this serendipitous uh, path you've been on. Um, is there one that sticks out something very impactful that someone can write on a sticky note, put on their computer, look at it day in and day out and get some you know inspiration or relevance from anything you'd share to end our conversation on? Sure. I mean, I'll just say, I mean, obviously the serendipity engine component, I think is huge. And, and just reminding people for me, it's just a reminder to suit up for every game. But another one is, is um, my coach loves to talk about the domino effect. And I don't know if you ever played with dominoes when you were a kid, like not, not the way uh, the, the Puerto Ricans in my neighborhood play dominoes, like, like actual dominoes, yeah. like a, we, we would just like line them up and then push them over exactly, and make like yeah. little, <laughs> little domino rallies. I mean, if you want to spend a relaxing couple of hours, just go on YouTube and find some domino building people. But here's the thing that's amazing about dominoes. A domino can knock over a domino that's slightly larger than it by a factor of like 1.3 or 1.4. And that means that if you knock over a regular size domino, you can knock over a larger domino, which can knock over a larger domino. This is what's really amazing. And this is why I want everyone just to write the domino effect on a sticky note. If you knock over a normal size domino and you line up 29 dominoes that are all 1.4 larger and 1.4 larger in 29 dominoes. The 29th domino is the size of the empire state building and it can be knocked over. Right. It gives you chills, right? Yeah, it does. That's crazy. And it is crazy. And there was actually, if you, if you can find it on YouTube, somebody did an experiment with like five dominoes or six and they get really big and it's crazy. It's really hard to think about, changing some of the biggest things in our lives. And if you try to do it all at once, it is overwhelming. And I think one thing that, you know, for me as a coach and for me as a person who uh, tries to coach myself and gets coaching from as many people as I can, finding that first domino, the smallest thing that you can do, as you said, like just getting started, the smallest thing you can do to just get started is so powerful. Uh, and the second thing I would add is, and we didn't talk about this, like um, removing the option to stop is always really powerful too. So we usually, a lot of times, like with my book, I pre-launched it. In 2018, I, I pre-sold uh, several hundred copies to friends and family and my whole network. The book was just a proposal and like one chapter at that point. It's really hard to stop writing the book as painful as it is in the middle. And it's always painful in the middle. 
it's really hard to stop when several hundred people who you love, respect, and admire have already bought the book. And so I would say the domino effect and uh, remove the option to stop by telling as many people as possible who, uh, you know, shame's a motivator for you as it is for me. Uh, <laughs> tell as many people as possible what you intend to do, right? There's all those studies that show that people who write down their goals and tell people about them will achieve them. And this is why. So it's really setting up the first domino mm -hmm. and then telling people about the last domino. And that's the domino effect is a really powerful way to not just get started, but to keep going. I think that's a great way to uh, wrap up our conversation, Daniel. This is a this has been fun. I, we could probably talk for hours on this. Maybe we'll have to have you back for a, a part Happy. two uh, down the road. Where, where can everyone uh, say hello to you online? Where's the best spot? Yeah, there's two easy places. One is my personal website, danielstillman.com. That's where I blog and uh, you know share my writing. And theconversationfactory.com is where people can find my podcast and uh, some of my online courses and things like that. And they can find me on Twitter at D.A. Stillman uh, and LinkedIn. You know, reach out. I'm there. I'm in all those places. Daniel, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate the time today. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the questions and uh, the opportunity to share some of my ideas on this stuff because it matters. Hey everyone, just one more quick thing before you skip along in your day. You know, if you do enjoy this content or other things that I've put out or just enjoy learning more and trying to adapt your thinking uh, to become happier each and every day, there's a couple of things that you may benefit from. Um, if you go to my website, brianandraco.com forward slash subscribe, you can sign up for my newsletter that goes out once a week. And that's really a digest of a lot of information that I gather throughout the weeks, whether it's a new video that I think could be informative or a podcast that's been valuable to me, book that I might read, etc. Um, secondly, I blog three times a week, and these are more micro blogs, one to five minute reads, short digestible blogs that'll send right to your inbox on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. So check that out on my website, brianandraco.com forward slash subscribe if you think it's something you might enjoy. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.